Well, if you return with me uh, to Galatians chapter 2, and we're going to read, uh, oh, sorry, Galatians chapter 3. We've just been reading Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 3, uh, and I'm going to read for us just uh, four verses, verses 15 uh, to 18. Uh, if you've got one of the church Bibles, uh, that's page 1170, uh, and in the large print, 1809. If you haven't got a Bible, there's plenty of them at the back. It would help you to follow along if you have one. Uh, but Galatians chapter 3, let me read from verse 15. Brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but, and to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. What I mean is this. The law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise. But God, in his grace, gave it to Abraham through a promise. This is God's word. And I've entitled uh, this sermon tonight, Willpower. And in doing so, I want to clarify something very important. I am not talking about summoning up power in ourselves, but the kind of will I'm talking about is that of an inheritance. Now, last time we were in Galatians, I introduced the sermon by considering the inheritance that two men who lived in a cave received from an estranged relative that had died and they became billionaires. You may remember that. All they had to do was to prove their identity and show that they really were, by DNA evidence, related to the person who had died. And they did so. And so these two men, who up to that point had been living in a cave, became billionaires. It was amazing. And we considered that faith in Jesus Christ is the DNA of the children of Abraham. And the idea of a will is also in this passage in Galatians, in these verses. Providing someone is of sound mind, a will can be drawn up and is then a binding agreement that cannot be changed after someone has died. And some people have divided up their estates in some very strange ways that their relatives no doubt wish could be changed, but are not able to be. So just some examples. The um, hotelier, Leona Helmsley, when she died, left an estate of 2.5 billion pounds. And she left it to the care of dogs. One of her dogs was left 12 million pounds. Now, you might think, what a fortunate dog this was, but the problem was her family were trying to hunt down the dog and take ownership of it, right? I mean, I'm sure that the dog would want some very nice holidays and very nice other things. And so the dog had to be kept 
like under a witness protection program, <laughs> to stop being found because it was so rich. Uh, another example of a, of a crazy will is that a, a Portuguese aristocrat left his considerable estate to 70 random strangers from the Lisbon phone directory. Can you imagine being phoned up and being told, randomly, you've inherited all these millions of pounds? But most interestingly, at least for me, was that in 1928, there was an anonymous donation in a will made to the United Kingdom government. And it was a large, do a large um, inheritance, but the instruction was that it can only be used to pay off the national debt. And it can only be used if it would pay off the national debt in full. Well, it wasn't enough at the time. And so it is currently in a trust. And the trust is worth, at the moment, 350 million pounds. And it cannot be used because the national debt currently is 1.5 trillion pounds. And so I don't think that trust is ever going to be used anytime soon. Now, those stories are very strange, aren't they? I mean, you may be shocked, you may even be annoyed that someone would distribute so much money to some things that are so crazy. But there's nothing that anyone can do about it. Because once a will has been written and the person has died, it is binding. Nothing can be done. And in that sense... It is like a covenant in the Bible. A covenant in the Bible is a binding promise. And when God makes a covenant, it cannot be broken. And in today's passage, Paul says in this way, God's promise is like a will. Now Paul is continuing in this section of Galatians to argue the truth of the verses we read in chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. He's showing from various angles that we cannot be made right with God through the works of the law, but only by faith in Jesus Christ. In verses 1 to 5, he showed us that's true by their experience, how they became believers. In verses 6 to 14, last time, he argued it through the scriptures, showing it as a biblical case from the Old Testament. And here, in verses 15 to 18, he argues from analogy, comparing from an example in everyday life. Notice that at the beginning of verse 1. Look at what it says. Brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life. He's going to use an analogy. Just as an aside here, by the way, notice here how Paul calls the Galatians brothers and sisters. He has called them confused, bewitched, and foolish. He has felt betrayed and astonished at them, but they were still deeply loved as his family. They were still children of Abraham. And for us, it's worth remembering that we may have members of our church that do foolish things. We may astonish one another at our stupidity from time to time. And we must call each other back to the truth from a deep love for them as brothers and sisters. That's just an aside uh, in, in verse 15. But more to the point of the passage, notice how Paul is going to use an analogy, an example from everyday life. And the analogy he uses is of a human covenant which cannot be broken. And this analogy shows us, first of all, the irrevocability of God's covenant. 
So the analogy he uses is that of a human covenant, he says, that has been duly established. The kind of covenant Paul has in mind is most likely to be a will or an inheritance, where property is given to an heir upon their death. The Greek word for covenant can also be translated as will. Furthermore, in verse 18, Paul speaks of our inheritance from God, and so it makes sense for the analogy to be a will. Now, in our day, um, I've made a will, and I can right now, if I want, well, not right now because I'm preaching, but this week, I can go and change the will if I wanted to. I can disinherit my children and give, you know, all of our money uh, to somebody else if I wanted to do that. Uh, But in Paul's culture, there was times when that was not the case. Uh, Because you could give your inheritance away early. An example of this is in the parable of the prodigal son. Uh, The prodigal son um, and his brother was given the inheritance early while the father was still alive. And when the father had done that, it was unalterable or irrevocable. There was nothing the father could do when the prodigal son decided to waste his inheritance. If the son decided to do that, that was his choice. There was nothing that man, that father could do. Another time when it's unch- you can't change it is obviously like in our culture, when someone dies. And so the analogy is, some, is, a, is a covenant that is irrevocable, a will that cannot be changed. And Paul says, just as a human covenant that's been established cannot be changed, so it is in this case, he says in verse 15. And he's talking about the covenant that God made with Abraham. He's been talking about Abraham's covenant in the preceding verses. He's talking here about the promise made to Abraham. That covenant that God made with Abraham was irrevocable. The promise that through him all nations would be blessed. That promise that God made was irrevocable. It had been duly established. And it was duly established through death. In Genesis 15, God promised Abraham that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the sky. Do you remember that? And Abraham believed the promise of God that he would have these descendants, even though, humanly speaking, him and his wife were too old to have children. And to establish the covenant, to establish the promise we see in Genesis 15 a strange ceremony. Let me read you, and I'll show the words on the screen what happened. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. Now, this is very strange to us. We don't do this kind of thing today. Well, I, I hope you don't do this kind of thing today. Okay, we, we don't do this today. 
But in Abram's day, this would have made perfect sense. God was saying in a most graphic way that if he in any way went back on his promise to Abraham, that he would allow himself to be subjected to the same fate as these creatures. But notice that Abraham never walked through, did he? He didn't walk through the halves of the animals. It was God that did. Uh, When we read of the smoking fire pot and the blazing torch, it was a, a vision of God. It was God saying, I'm walking through. God was the one who made the covenant. God was the one to whom it was responsible to fulfill the promise of blessing. And God will not break his covenant. It is irrevocable. It is established, in this case, by this very ceremony. Now, before moving on, it is worth pausing for a moment to consider the wonderful fact that God is faithful and he keeps his word. This is a most precious and encouraging truth for us to hold on to. God is faithful and he always keeps his word. Now, this is wonderful because He promises us salvation. He promises us that our sins will be forgiven through faith in Jesus Christ. He promises us that we will have eternal life in heaven if we put our faith in Jesus. And he is faithful in keeping that promise. Always. Isn't that encouraging? To know that when God says that, it is irrevocable. There is nothing that you or I or anyone or anything in the world or anything that can possibly happen that can stop God keeping that word. We are saved by faith in Jesus. It is an irrevocable promise. It is his work. He walked through the halves of those animals himself. He keeps his promise. And this should give us great assurance of salvation because it's not down to you. As Paul has been arguing, it's down to God and he always keeps his promise. Salvation is through faith in what Christ has done, not by works. And the promises of God to save us from our sin, his promises of salvation, are most encouraging to us as Christians. But don't forget also, if you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, God promises that there is judgment to come for those that reject him. For those that reject the wonderful salvation we've had. For those that continue to rebel against his good and, and, and his good rule and his kindness and his love toward us. As you reject that, God promises that there is judgment to come. Judgment that's deserved because of our sin. And Peter reminds us that although there is a delay, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness, Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So tonight, if you are a Christian, be confident that that God has saved you from your sin because of what Jesus has done. But if you're not a Christian, be aware that God has been very patient with you. But without repentance and turning to Jesus, there is judgment to come. And that is absolutely certain. It is true. How do we know this is true? Because of the identity of Abraham's seed. 
the identity of Abraham's seed. That's what verse 16 is about. Look again at verse 16. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. The word seed here refers to offspring, which is often how seed is translated in the NIV. In Genesis, God often repeated the promise to Abraham that he would become a great nation by referring to his seed or his offspring. So in terms of the promise of land, it says in Genesis 12, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring or seed, I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. In terms of descendants, it says he took him outside and said, Look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring or your seed be. And in terms of his offspring being a blessing, he says in Genesis 22, and through your offspring or your seed, all nations on earth will be blessed. Now often when the term offspring is used or seed, it's used in the Uh, in the Bible and in our own language, to refer to multiple people or descendants in the plural. And that's part of the meaning of the promises to Abraham. So Israel, the descendants of Abraham, did possess the land of Israel. They did become a great nation. Abraham did have lots of descendants. That is sometimes how the word is used. But other times it can be used in the singular to refer to one person. So an example of that in Genesis is uh, when Adam and his wife had another child after Abel had died. So it says, Adam knew his wife again and she bore a son and called his name Seth for she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel for Cain killed him. Here, offspring refers to one person, the person Seth. And Paul is saying that the particular promise of Abraham of offspring that would be a blessing to all nations refers to one particular offspring, one particular person who is Christ. God's promise is irrevocable, but it has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He is the blessing to all nations. And because he died and he rose again and he lives forevermore, he is the assurance that the promise is irrevocable. Do you remember how the promise to Abraham was ratified or established with that weird ceremony of walking through the animals? Do you remember how it was a sign that if this covenant is broken, there would be death to the covenant breaker? Well, in the New Testament, or the new covenant, the promise of blessing for us was fulfilled by another death, the death of Jesus on the cross for our sins. He died for our sins so that we can be forgiven and made right with God. Our sin deserves death. We are covenant breakers. We are those who have rejected God. But Jesus died in our place as a covenant breaker and he rose from the dead 
defeating death, showing that the penalty has been paid for, and so the covenant, the new covenant, has been established through his death and resurrection. And so now we have a new irrevocable covenant, one that we can receive the forgiveness of sins, new hearts led by an indwelling Holy Spirit. All of the promises of God are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He has finished the work for us. The identity of Abraham's seed is Jesus. And because of him, the promises of God are all fulfilled and we can participate in them. And this means that the promises of God are not only for the Jewish people, the physical offspring of Abraham, but are for all of those who put their faith in Jesus Christ. Now sometimes, as Christians, we have doubts, don't we? Do you ever have doubts? Do you ever wonder whether following Jesus is worth the cost? Do you ever wonder whether all that we read in the Bible is really true? Do you ever wonder, is it worth walking away? Do you ever feel like perhaps you're too sinful to be able to be really accepted by God? What do we do with those doubts? Well, let me encourage you to look at the identity of Abraham's seed. Look again at Jesus. When we doubt and we wonder, is this really true? When we doubt and we wonder, is this really worth it? When we doubt and we wonder, can I be accepted by God? We look at Jesus. We look again at the cross and the resurrection. And we remember that these are not fairy stories. These are events that happened in history. Jesus Christ really did die. And he really did indeed rise from the dead. It is absolutely certain, historically fact. He did. And he did this for us. And so when I'm doubting, I look again at Jesus and I say, yes, it's true, isn't it? Look at what he's done. And I can go to a brother or sister in the church and I can say, remind me again about Jesus. And they can say, oh, it's true, isn't it? It's true. He did die. He did rise. We come to church and we listen again to what Jesus has done. I mean, isn't it just brilliant that we can hear John's gospel every Sunday morning at the moment. It's just fantastic, isn't it? Because the purpose of John's gospel is to show us the glory of God in Christ. And aren't we seeing it every week? We see the greatest display of that glory in the death and resurrection of Jesus. He died for our sins. He rose from the dead. All of God's blessings are fulfilled in him. So when you doubt, brother or sister, look again at Jesus Christ. See him. See what he's done for us. And may he dispel all of our doubts as he assures us through the Holy Spirit that these things are true. And so let me encourage you, come to church, listen to the gospel, read your Bibles, speak to other believers, look at what God has done in the past, look at what God promises in the future, look at what he's done in all of our lives. Be assured, this is true. And when we do this, we can experience again that Easter joy, he is indeed risen from the dead and I can have life in him. The promises of God are irrevocable and they are true because of Jesus. So let's, again, let's, well, let's follow Paul's argument here. If the promise of God is irrevocable and the promise is fulfilled in the finished work of Christ, then there is no way 
that law-keeping or any work or anything other than faith in what Jesus has done is going to make us right with God. So we've seen an illustration in verses 15 and 16, and now we see an explanation in verses 17 and 18. Notice in verse 17 how Paul writes, what I mean is this. It's really helpful when the Bible says that because you know exactly what someone means, right? This is what Paul means. If you've got all confused over the seed and offspring and all of that, focus again, verse 17, what I mean is this. And the the illustration points to this explanation. The incompatibility of law and promise. That's our third point. The incompatibility of law and promise. Now remember, Paul is arguing against false teachers who are saying that you've got to follow the law as well as having faith in Jesus if you want to be right with God. God will only really like you if you try really hard to do what God uh, says in the Old Testament law. But Paul says in these two verses, you can't have law and promise together. You can't have both. Let's see how he puts it. What I mean is this, in verse 17, the law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. So Abraham, who believed God, trusting in his promise, couldn't have been a law keeper because the law of Moses was not given until hundreds of years later. Now we'll see next time, next week, what the purpose, or not the week after next, what the purpose of the law is. But here, we see that the purpose of the law was not to replace the promise of Abraham. The promise to Abraham was established by that ceremony. It was not annulled by the law of Moses. You can't have law and promise together. The law of Moses didn't, didn't come along and say, well, now the promise has disappeared and you've got to try really hard to, to be my friend. The promise to Abraham always has stood. You can't have law and promise together. And so in verse 18, for if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise. I'm going to illustrate what Paul means by explaining the difference between what Tim Keller calls a gift promise and a law wage. A gift promise and a law wage. I want you to imagine, I write you a letter and I say, I'm going to give you £1,000 and all you've got to do is just come and meet me in a certain place and receive the money. Okay? Now, you can imagine that I'm good for the money. (laughs) A bit of a stretch, maybe. But you can imagine I'm good for the money and I've always kept my promises before and so you know that if you just show up, I'm going to give you a thousand pounds. That is a gift promise, isn't it? The only way that you can fail to receive the money is by not showing up. But I want you to imagine a different letter. This time I say, I want to give you a thousand pounds, but in order to receive the money, I want you to paint my house, cook my dinner, and clip my toenails. And if you do that, you can receive the money. Now, how many of you, I'm not going to ask you, <laughs> how many of you want to do that? But if you did that, that isn't a gift promise, it's a 
it's a law wage, isn't it? You have to do something to earn that money. You've got to do something pretty grim in terms of cutting my toenails, right? But you can see, I hope, that they are totally different ways of getting a thousand pound. Now, both of them, you'll get a thousand pound, but they're not the same ways. And one of them is a pretty grim way of getting it, right? But the grimmer problem, even than clipping my toenails, is that spiritually, there's no way you can ever fulfill the obligations of the law to get the inheritance anyway. It's not possible to do. You keep failing. And so there's a massive problem. If if you're going to try to earn your way into heaven, you've got a big problem, haven't you? Because you'll never make it. Because you can't do it. And so wonderfully, in the middle of verse 18, we read those words, but God. But God. If our inheritance depends on law, then it's not depending on the promise. And if our inheritance depends on us working, it doesn't depend on God giving, but God. And we praise God for but God because without God, there's nothing I can do. But that's not how God works. God is not a God who saves us by giving us a list of things to tick off to do. He is a God who saves us through a promise of a gift. And we read about it in verse 18. Look at what it says. But God, in his grace, gave it to Abraham through a promise. Do you see? God is a God of grace. That is, he gives undeserved favor to us, a a wonderful gift that we don't deserve. Abraham didn't earn his inheritance. As we saw last time, he was a pagan man who was a big sinner. But in his grace, God gave Abraham a promise that he would inherit. He gave Abraham a promise that that through his offspring, all nations would be blessed. And that promise depended on God. It didn't depend on Abraham. It depended on God. Our salvation doesn't depend on us. It depends on God. And wonderfully, God has delivered on that promise to Abraham. We read about this from from, uh, Luke's gospel when Zechariah uh, sang. Uh, Listen again to what he says. Notice what he says about the promise to Abraham. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us. That is Jesus in the house of his servant David, as he said through his holy prophets of long ago, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show mercy to our ancestors and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham. Do you see? He, when Jesus was going to come, God's people were celebrating that the promise to Abraham that all nations would be blessed, is being fulfilled. They'd been waiting for ages. Last year, I think it was the end of October, I got to the New Testament. I felt like I'd been waiting all year, and I had, for Jesus to come. I mean, I'm thankful we can read it in October. We don't have to wait till December 25th, right? But he comes, he arrives. The fulfillment of God's promises are, are met in Christ. No wonder they were singing. No wonder we sing as God's people, right? Because Jesus has come and all the promises of God have been fulfilled. Jesus is the one who has been raised up for our salvation in fulfillment of the promise to Abraham. And it is in him and the promise of forgiveness found in his death and resurrection 
that we put our faith in because God does not break his promise. If you put your faith in Jesus, you will be saved. A promise like this is something to be believed and accepted, not to be earned. Law and promise are incompatible. And so let me ask you this evening, are you trusting in this promise from God to save you from your sins? Or are you trying to work really hard to make God like you? Trust in the promise. Receive it. Perhaps another pertinent question, though, for us, if we're claiming to follow Jesus, is this. Is this promise enough for you? Is it enough for you? Because sometimes in our lives, we say that we believe that Jesus has died for my sins. We acknowledge that he is the one who gives life. We can give all the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We know the promises, but we don't think it's quite enough to really be blessed. We might not feel like we need to earn God's promise, but we do feel that we might need to add to it. I mean, in verse 15, Paul says, no one can set aside or add to a human covenant, but don't sometimes we try to add to God's promise? Um, we, we might think, well, it's not enough. Uh, I, I, need, I need more. I, uh, and, and so we, we, we disobey God's word because we think, well, I, I need a little bit more. Like, as if God's holding out, he's holding back. Is the promise enough when it, it costs you to believe the promise? When your friends mock you? When you've got less money perhaps because of it? When doing what God says is right means losing a relationship? Is it enough? Do you still believe the promise then, or do you think, well, it's not enough, I need more? Is the promise enough when, when times are difficult and life doesn't seem blessed in the sense that it's not all going well? Are you clinging to the promise? Is it, is it enough? Do you fix your hope then on, on what, what God has promised in Christ rather than on just the difficulties around you? Is the promise enough? Is the promise enough when other promises seem more appealing than this promise? When you're promised by the media, by friends and family, by Satan himself that you can have happiness apart from Christ and his way. You, you can have happiness apart from Christ in money or relationships, in applause, in power, or whatever it may be. In those times, you need willpower. Not power in ourselves that we summon up, but faith in the powerful promise of what God has given us in Christ. And let me tell you, the promise is always enough. Always enough. Always. And in fact, it's more than enough. Because we read that one day, when we're in glory, we'll see that it's more than enough. Because the Bible says that what no eye has seen and what no ear has heard and what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him. Is it enough? Absolutely, it's, it's more than enough. It's more than you can even imagine. And so when those other promises come calling, they are rubbish. 
They are not true in that they will not give you true blessing. Yes, they may give you a thrill for a while. But no mind has conceived what God has in store for those who love him. So hold on to the promise. Don't throw it away for something that doesn't even compare. Hold on to the promise that we have in Christ because it's true. And you know what else? I was thinking that we we looked at those crazy decisions on those people that gave ridiculous things with their estates, you know, to dogs and the UK government and things like that. And I say this reverently, but we can look at God in, in a similar kind of way. Isn't it, in a sense, crazy that God looks at us, sinners as we are and rebels, and says, I'm going to give them everything. <laughs> Isn't that amazing that he would do that? Don't we wonder how on earth would God do that? But he does. And if you don't believe it, look at Jesus. Look at what he did on the cross and in his resurrection. And why does God do it? Why would God do that? The answer, because he loves us. He loves us so much that he sent his son to die for our sins. And so we receive the blessing of eternal life through faith in Jesus and what he has done for us. As we come to the end of verse 18... Uh, we come to the end of a section in Paul's argument. He's argued from experience, from scripture, and from analogy that we are saved by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. And you may have been listening uh, each week to Galatians and thinking, Steve, you're saying the same thing over and over and over again. And and yeah, I am, because that's what God's doing in this book. But don't we need to hear it over and over and over again? Isn't that why we have the Lord's Supper over and over and over again? Because we need to hear what Jesus has done and we need to daily come back to God and say, I put my faith in Jesus Christ. That's what we need to be doing every morning when we get out of bed. And when we go to bed at night, we put our head on the pillow and we say, I put my faith in Jesus Christ. That if I don't wake up tomorrow morning, I will be with you forever. I have my faith in Jesus Christ. We need to be reminded of that every single day. And when we look at what he has done, when we look at his death and his resurrection and the wonderful promises we have in him, how can we possibly put our faith in anyone or anything else? Put your faith in Jesus. He is always, always worthy. We're going to finish with a uh, final song which fits uh, perfectly what Paul has been teaching us in these verses. Uh, We're going to sing, By faith we stand as children of the promise. So let's stand and worship God together.
For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, the Amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Amen.